Hello? Maternal Health 911? What's your emergency? Hi, I'm Dr. Jill Baker. I'm a wife, a mother, a community health scholar, an executive director, and a fertility coach. More than 12 years ago, I was on my own infertility journey. Since then, I've made it my personal mission to help anyone who is on their own journey to become a parent, as well as shed light on infertility and maternal health experiences of BIPOC women and couples. Now, let's begin this week's episode of Maternal Health 911. Greetings, Maternal Health 911 listeners. This is your host, Dr. Jill Baker. I am here to give a little overview of this very exciting episode which we're calling Lost Episodes. (laughs) This is an episode from my old show, A Tribe Called Fertility podcast, of which this episode I had the pleasure of talking to the amazing, brilliant Dr. Angela Clack, whose whole career has focused on helping women of color deal with infertility and pregnancy loss. And so myself and uh, my old partner, Rayal Hamilton Romeo, were able to talk to her and have this great one-on-one conversation, but we actually never released this episode. And they were so gracious to let me share this episode with you all on Maternal Health 911. So without further ado, yeah, check out this episode with me, Rayal, and Dr. Angela Clack. Enjoy. Dr. Clack, welcome. Thank you so much for being on with A Tribe Called Fertility. Hi, everybody, and thank you for having me back. Yes. So I know you've had a chance to hear Janine's story, so we'll talk about her first. And we, in that episode, we also talked a little bit about Chrissy Teigen and John Legend and them experiencing um, a similar loss. And we touched on Megan Duchess of Sussex, the loss that she and her husband, Prince Harry, experienced. It sounded like it was very early on in the pregnancy as well. Just in terms of miscarriages, I guess the first question for you would be, why do you think women and families, couples don't necessarily talk about experiencing that type of loss? Oh, wow. I think many reasons. I think one of those reasons is there is a um, sense of shame around thinking that there was something that they could have done mm-hmm. to prevent this or there's something they did. And there's the excitement about being pregnant and announcing that and getting the families all excited and, and looking forward to um, if it's a first time mom or another baby being added to the family and the grandparents and everybody. People already are doing names, planning, and then to deliver that news. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't want to answer a lot of questions because people are going to think what happened and they need time to breathe. And um, I think families don't know what to say. And so they keep this experience private for as long as they can. And they tell one or two, and then slowly they 
integrate this story with the rest of the family. But I think it's just this something around what did I do? And they don't necessarily always know what right. medically. And we are human, so we're gonna ask what happened. And people are just trying to figure things out with themselves and with their partner. Mm-hmm. And really don't have the energy to give a lot to a family member that they have. Yeah, I think, I think one of the biggest. I would have to um, agree with you there. One of the things Janine said when we interviewed her was, I was so embarrassed. And I was like, oh my gosh, just personally, when she told me, I was like, you really don't have to be embarrassed. But I right. can understand it's like doing, because she did a not like huge fanfare, but she did a post on social media, which is very common nowadays. And I think in that type of forum, knowing that so many people know, and then to have to go back and be like, yeah, so this didn't work out. And I actually have a friend who she's not a black woman and the same thing. And she mentioned it and everybody at work was like, oh my God, and how someone's, and all I could say was like, I literally just shook my head because that wasn't my news to share, but everybody was just like, oh, we haven't heard from her. Is she doing okay? And don't want them to say the wrong thing. But at the same time, it's you also don't want to perpetuate that kind of, not a lie, but the misconception that they're still with child. I think that it's not my story to share. And I think that we want, and that's where I think we have to be patient with the couple or the mom or the dad, and in letting them tell the story that they want to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Families, we just, we just, I know, in there, and sometimes it's out of just genuine concern. What can I do? And other times it's just, just we just need to know, and that that's very uncomfortable for families to set that boundary. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree. The other thing, so in Janine's case, this was her first pregnancy and she experienced this loss, but I know of a few other women personally, and I think Jill, you even mentioned someone Mm -hmm. that you know as well in the last episode who's experienced multiple miscarriages. What does something like that do to someone? Because I can, thankfully, I've not had that experience, but I know from the way my brain works, I'd be like, What's wrong with me? I'm a failure of a woman. I can't even, I can make a a baby, but I can't even sustain a baby. Does this mean that when I do eventually become a mother that I won't be able to take care of one? Like, what does that do to someone just from a psychological standpoint? Yeah, I think you got it right that there's, again, we're talking about shame and some way that I'm defective. I can't even carry this baby um, because I, like the stories and narratives you guys are sharing, I've worked with a couple of women over the last couple of years who've had multiple miscarriages. And so when they get pregnant, they do not get excited because it's, I'm probably not going to be able to carry this one either. So it, it creates a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity and depression because now they feel like I can't even get excited because I've been pregnant three times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the doctor says, I have to get rest or I have to do this and I'm not so sure that I can do all of that even if I wanted to and I did there's no guarantee so it creates just so much around feeling like I'm broken and defective there must be something wrong with me and a sense of then a loss of the ideal of being a mother um, right. I'm give up 
and they give up that whole dream about being. And so we have to work through that loss of the, the new identity or role of being a mom has to be worked on. There's so many dynamics that come with that, but there's a grieving process with that too. And I think people don't recognize that even with miscarriages and losses, that even though the woman can subsequently have um, more pregnancies, they're still um, grieving the loss of those babies. Um, and so we have to make sure that we take that in consideration when they don't show so much excitement when they tell families, oh, I'm pregnant again. And they're like, oh, why aren't you so excited? She's still grieving the loss of the experience of not being able to carry the other baby. Um, so there's a lot of patience that has to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think for women, they internalize this as some defective or something, or something like that. You said something that was very interesting, and I've heard people say this, and I find it to be a bit insensitive and maybe controversial, where people are like, oh, it was early enough in the pregnancy that it, was, it wasn't like a real baby, or the baby wasn't oh, here yet, so did you really that. have time to bond with the baby and those mm -hmm. types of things? Can you talk uh, to us about how I feel like it's very real. So what is that? And personally, like I've had two abortions and I know, I think I was asleep for both. And my, mm. with my second abortion, I was contemplating whether or not I wanted to continue with the pregnancy. And when I woke up from am amnesia, when I woke up from the anesthesia, the nurse said that I kept saying, my baby, I want to see my baby. So me thinking about that for myself and knowing that someone who has carried a child to maybe three months, four months, six, seven, eight, nine months, only to have a stillbirth or a miscarriage, what is that? And is that really a real loss? And how connected is mother and baby at that point? I think for the most part, most of the women, at least I can talk about now, whether people are saying that because they've never been a mom and so they don't know what that experience is to know something is actually wrong. Like you have a whole human being mm -hmm. to be growing inside of you. And the connection right away, particularly when women have worked hard to conceive, knowing mm -hmm. that that's a different narrative. Yes, seven years, eight years, 10 years, whatever has been the time has passed. And then you get to know, oh, seed, that seed is growing. People are connected right away. And, and I think the insensitivity either comes out of ignorance, honestly, mm -hmm. or um, they just don't know in terms of never having been a parent. I've heard that too, when people lose an adult, like they may lose a mom or dad. And I've heard an adult say, we didn't have a relationship with them anyway. <laughs> that doesn't matter. They still, genetically, I'm a part of them still. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I haven't talked to them in 30 years, but that's still a loss. And so I'm feeling that loss of that connection or the attachment that I have formed already in my heart and in my spirit and in my mind. So I, I, I think that's a real, just, I want to say that maybe it's just out of ignorance, that people just don't know better mm -hmm. and just don't know what else to say. And I think they're helping the person mm -hmm. by saying, by minimizing the significance of you didn't hold her or him and you didn't get to see them. And so Maybe it's not as bad as them coming into the world. And I don't, th th these are not apples and oranges. It's like babies. I, I'm sorry. That is something that people say. And I think conversations like this will help people to not, not say that. 
or say things like that that, that feel very uh, rejecting right. to, the, to the mom and the dad. So I'm glad you said mom and dad, because one of the things that I'm always curious about it, and thankfully, like I know a lot of amazing couples, but in terms of dads in times like this with pregnancy loss, like mom and baby are literally connected from a physical standpoint, umbilical cord baby is growing inside of mom. But dad is, or even if it's another partner, if you have same sex couples, for example, the other partner is not necessarily living that day-to-day experience and bonding with the um, unborn child in the same way. So what is the grief like for the non-pregnant partner, I guess is the best way for me to put that. And how can that person support the pregnant mother or even have other people support um, them as a couple? What I've heard from the non pregnant partner, if it's the, uh, the male figure or female partner, is that they're forgotten. That mm-hmm. everybody comes and nurtures and everybody comes and um, rallies for the mom because she's, the, so to speak, the incubator. She is the one who's actually carrying the seed and, the, and preparing her, has prepared her womb. And so we only think about the mom and people forget about the, the non-pregnant partner. And and the non-pregnant partner also wants to support the mom, so they will also step back and allow people to love on that person. And sometimes they won't speak up for themselves and say, gosh, I'm hurting too. And often the fathers are forgotten. They, in traditional roles, they're the one who may not be around because they're working or something, and mom may be working too, but she's probably at some point be taking it down a little bit less and trying to, to just really keep her body healthy. And so we put a lot of expectations on the, the, the other partner to take care of other day-to-day things. And so when the baby does not, um, the baby isn't here anymore, the, the partner also feels the loss that he or she, whoever that partner is, just doesn't seem to get the same attention and loved on and cared for. And it's unfortunate, but again, I think conversations like this will remind people that there are two parents here. So now what do you say to someone who's experienced a pregnancy loss? Because I know I was remembering that when I was very young, I want to say maybe like early teens, we had a family friend and she and her husband had one child and she was um, expecting the second. And then something happened and she ended up having a stillbirth. I believe it was after, I think she was about six months pregnant and no one said anything. So we got the news that she was in the hospital. The baby didn't make it. She comes out of the hospital a few days later. No one says anything. It, and I always wondered as a young girl, why wouldn't we talk about it? Why wouldn't we say anything? And then I was like, was it too painful? And do you just never mention it again? So what is the quote unquote right thing to say? Or Because it's either you're full on as, oh my God, what happened? What did you do? Like, how are you feeling? Do you need anything? Or it's the completely ignore it like it never happened. It's just two extremes. What's the happy medium? I probably can answer what not to say first. Okay. <laughs> That's your thing. Yeah. I think not to say is, oh, you can have more, you already have children, 
Like those things are Don't so hurtful mm-hmm. and it's so dismissive of where that mother is right in that moment. Like that's the last thing they need to hear again. I think people are well-intentioned. They just don't know what to say. And I think the reason why it's not addressed in your original question, people are accustomed to traditions around death as an adult. So if an adult is in a car accident or an adult is 65 or 66, 80, we know that at some point they are reaching that age where more health complications come in. We prepare our mind for death inevitably at some point. People don't anticipate that for moms and, and newborn babies and infants and fetuses. So they're not equipped with how to handle that versus saying, wow, she lived a long life. She did this during her time on earth. She did all these, we can list all these accolades or these achievements or if someone's in an accident, wow, that was a tragic accident. We understand accidents. We don't understand fetal loss. And so many people don't know what to say because that's not an experience that they know happens as frequently. We know mm-hmm. the numbers. Okay, okay. Research and we know the numbers and we know the stories. But the average person who doesn't do this work or isn't in some way an advocate for this, this is a they're at a loss too because they're they don't know what to say because it's not what society has um, given enough attention to. We talk we talk about death and dying for the aging population, but we do not or or, or chronically ill, right? But we don't, and we have not looked at fetal, maternal fetal as much. So with that said, I'm not sure how familiar you are about, you probably are, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen losing their son, Jack. We talked about this on the episode with Janine and her, Chrissy, posting the pictures in the hospital right after delivering Jack. And just, we all said the, the courage of Chrissy to do something like that, knowing that she wasn't going to go home with Jack and her asking John to please take these pictures. And at first he was resistant and then he agreed to take the pictures of her. Um, But unfortunately, uh, she received a lot of of harsh feedback Mm -hmm. from people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to hear your um, perspective on this um, as this was how she one method she chose to to handle her grief from your professional perspective, just what do you think about her decision to take these pictures and also your feelings on the comments that uh, she received about them? Yeah, I remember this and I had read about it and I think I posted a couple articles about it too. And one of the things I get so a little bit, ang- I don't know if angry is the word, I don't know what. Um, people judging other people's choices and around how they want to share their story. If I want to come out and say I'm a part of the new movement, something happened to me, I don't need the backlash. Why didn't you come out there? Why are you coming out now? I'm coming out now because of whatever reason. I don't need that judgment. And I feel like that's where she was. Like, this is how I want to share my story. And this is how I want to remember and memorialize this loss. You may not do it that way. This may feel uncomfortable for you, but don't judge how I choose to remember what I 
have established as a relationship already with this business. That's how I'm creating a ritual and I'm a memorializing it. This is my story. Mm-hmm. How are you making this choice hurting you? Why did you get to judge that about me? And I'm sorry, so sorry that people, because of social media, yes. people have such a platform to always have an opinion about. And I'm just hoping that she, and I'm not knowing her, but knowing of her, that she did not internalize any of that, and that her and God did exactly the way they mm-hmm. wanted it to happen, and that this for her will help her move along in her grieving process in a much more healthier way. And people have to allow people to have their story. I feel like no matter what you do, someone has something to say. Yeah. So yes. if she didn't, then it's oh, how come y'all didn't, didn't share the story? It. Like it's exactly. Like, we want to know what happened. Yeah, right. yeah. Like we know she was pregnant. Aren't you going to tell us? It's it's interesting that you say that because on an unrelated topic, there's been something going around on social media. Like I said, I'm Caribbean, so I follow a lot of the Caribbean accounts. Has nothing to do with fertility at the moment, but something you said in everyone has like that opinion, whether one way or the other. And it's a common thread that I'm noticing. And I don't know if it's just this keyboard warrior syndrome where you have this veil of anonymity because you are not um, saying this to someone in person, or if it's that you just feel so entitled to your opinion because social media gives everyone the opportunity to have a platform, but it's, if I say I decided to wear red socks instead of blue, oh, what's wrong with blue socks? It's like the Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. We're not talking about that right now. So it's almost like people just really, I think it really is like this entitlement. It's just, it's very bizarre to me that they feel like they have to have an opinion. And especially if you don't agree, instead of scrolling past, unless it's factually incorrect, I very rarely like jump into social media conversations, but people just feel like it's their place to just say things that are just so bizarre that they wouldn't say, quote unquote, in real life. I think the other thing with social media, what happens is because we share so much of ourselves there, is people feel the right to insert themselves into your story as if they're like a family member or something that they get to share in their minds. You didn't want me to say anything. You shouldn't have put it out there. Some things are right. better left said and kept in your head. You can think whatever you want, but it's not necessary that you have to feel like you have to insert yourself inside everybody's story. So I think, again, that's the irresponsibility of social media. And that's not going to okay. Yeah. One thing I've been very curious about. So, for example, with people who if they've experienced like fertility issues or they've had like multiple miscarriages or loss and they find that they're not able to conceive whether naturally or through fertility assistance. Oftentimes, if you say something like, I know you really wanted to have a biological child, you can adopt, you can Mm -hmm. consider surrogacy. What is it about us as humans, I guess is the best way to ask, that we feel that need to have a biological child? Is it ego? Is it like something ingrained in us just from a biological standpoint? What is that? I feel like if it's, yeah, if it's not, if we didn't create it, it's not as, it's, you didn't fight hard for it, then it wasn't like a fight that was worth winning kind of thing. Is that 
what is that with us in naturally or biologically procreating? That's a good question. I'm not sure if I know everybody's rationale or how they understand that. I think some of this is historical and that we have, unless we know of uh, people before us who haven't had babies, if we have this whole line of generations of women who've had 10 kids and then you come along and you don't have any, there's just what's going on. But I I think sometimes it's very ostracizing and Mm. you don't follow the family legacy of, yeah, we all have six or more kids or something like that. I don't know why people, because later on, we do a lot of kinship care. Later on, we are aunts of um, our sister or brother's kids. Like we pick it up later. So I don't know why we don't adopt that at the beginning. Like it's being, it's thinking. Now you notice that more, at least I've noticed, more moms are doing that because Candy did it, right? Candy Burst did uh, this. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and Chloe, right? So there are more women mm-hmm. who are, Chloe or Ken, one of them. Yeah, I'm sorry again. Now, yeah, whether they're doing it for vain reasons or because they really, I don't, and you hear so many things, but I, I don't know. But I don't know if I know the answer to that. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just that historically we have just thought that we should be able to to bring our own children into the world and, and be the parent for that. I don't know. That's a, I, I mean, I think the only thing I can offer to that from Gamal and I going through our infertility challenge for two years with trying to get pregnant. I know for me, I just felt one, I wanted to be a mom, L'Oreal, you know that I wanted to be a mom mm-hmm. forever. <laughs> and so that was why I fast forward everything else, like finish school, do this, do that. And then right after boom, I'm going to start my family. And so those two years, I really felt, and I just felt like less of a woman because but as a woman, biologically, we're supposed to be able to get pregnant. And then that not happening, I, I really felt like something was wrong with me as a woman because I couldn't get pregnant. That's really interesting. I will say when my gynecologist told me that I was going through ovarian failure, in my head, I was like, uh-huh. oh, okay, I don't want any more kids anyway. But then I left right. his office and went in the car and was bawling my eyes out. And I yeah. called my mom. And I was like, I don't even know why I'm crying. And my mother, she's very <laughs> detached. <laughs> so she's like, she gets emotional, but the things she gets emotional about wouldn't be the same things I would. So she was like, why are you crying? She was like, you don't want any more kids. You're not going to have your period anymore. You should be happy. And I was like, <laughs> but I'm too young. I was like, I'm only yeah. 39. This is like messing with other parts of my life. She was like, just say goodbye and keep it moving. I cannot tell you what that was about to this day, why I had such a breakdown that I was in premature ovarian failure, except maybe in some recess of my mind, I felt like my womanhood or like my- It was being taken away from like you. leaving and I didn't have yeah. the option to say, I don't want this. The you were was it now. wasn't in your control. Right. And I'm a that's huge control freak. So, so I know that's infertility is the, is the same way. It's the same control and the control part for us control freaks. Um, oh, okay. you, have, you are not in control of that. That's what, it's that loss so of control. Yes, of a woman because of that. Whether I've had children or not, before it's oh wow, the, it's taking away something that identified me as a mother, as mm-hmm. a woman. 
there's a part of me that, oh, I don't have that anymore. So that might be, that sounds what you just described. Okay. I wonder, and then we can go on to talking about Omari, but one other question I had. So when we met with Ado for episode two, she talked about having the double mastectomy, hair Mm -hmm. issues. What is it? hair falling out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. about those things. Mm Because I even remember having having PCOS and going through that time where my hair, which is usually super curly, went like pin straight, like I had a relaxer again. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like what's happening to me? And then me cutting it. I've always cut my hair. Jill knows like I would cut my hair off. It'll grow back long again, cut it off again, like almost bald. And in that instant, just thinking about hair, breasts, like the things that we think make us feminine or women, what is it about the loss of these? I don't want to say things like appendages, like not organs. I don't know. I'm not using the right terminology, (laughs) but what is it about not having (laughs) those parts to us that makes us feel like we're less than women? Yeah. It's insane to me. The hair. Those are the parts that identify us as feminine from masculine. Hair. Hair. And the womb. Like those are things that identify us as being a woman feminine and being a mother that we, that sets us apart from the, the masculine part but also think about this growing up old school our hair is our crowning glory and so for yes. years that is been like we did not cut our hair another thing and my grandma said like all this. the time mm-hmm. y'all know that yeah. <laughs> jill yes my grandmother Jill's hair used to be like down hair. to her butt. Uh-huh. And I feel like that's why you started cutting your hair when you got older and went to yep. college. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> but I'm doing it now. No one's going to stop me. <laughs> but yeah, she was like, you don't, your hair is your crown and glory. That's right. That's that old school. Yes. Yeah. Karma. Yeah. Right. Like it's passed down. down. The same thing. Yeah. Those early messages that get passed down generations. That's, it's very interesting, like the things that we hold on to, like regardless of where we go in the world, what our experiences are, how much education we've acquired, those are the things that are like ingrained in us that it's almost like nature instead of like nurture, even though it's been nurtured for us. Wow. Okay. Huh. Listen, I want to say this because uh-huh. now you make me, it's not until it becomes a consciousness of raising awareness that we aren't identified by those things. So I always think of India Ari, I'm not my hair. Uh, like it's so kind of yes. later um, mm-hmm. that we are more than hair. We are more than our breath. And we are we are more than those things. There's so much more to us. So we don't have them. It doesn't take away from who we are. It's your perception that mm-hmm. I should look a certain way. And I should have those. So when we lose those things, I think that's part of the early thinking around you keep your hair and all those things but later on that so many people go away from that like yeah. you say you or change that identity from those very traditional those kind of things that happen much 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 before our time yeah I feel like I'm going through that with my 14 year old now she decided that she didn't want to relax her hair anymore and she wanted to transition and at the start of the pandemic she was like I'm tired of this I just want to cut the straight ends off and I was like are you sure 
you don't know what you look like with short hair. You haven't had short hair in a while. And she was like, just cut it. And I cut it. And then she was like, why did you let me do this? I don't like it. I look like a boy. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it's been months. It's like starting to grow back, but the same exact thing. And I'm like, you are super beautiful. Look at, you look like me. I was like, and everybody says we look alike and you think I'm pretty. I was like, so you must be pretty too. And she's like, you can wear short hair and I can't. So it's interesting that I've never indoctrinated her in that way. And like I said, I've cut my hair so many times in her entire life that it's interesting that she would still hold on to that. So to your point, I'm going through that now and I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like you are still beautiful with hair, without hair. I'm like, we could do a baldy. And she's no, not going to happen. So it's really just interesting to see just different stages of becoming a woman and just becoming comfortable with yourself. Hello, Maternal Health 911 listeners. If you are enjoying this episode, and if you happen to be going through infertility or someone who might be and who needs support, I want to announce to all of you that I am offering fertility and infertility coaching services. And I have a very limited amount of spots. But for those of you who are interested, please visit my website, www.drjoebaker.com, or you can email me at drjoebaker at gmail.com about your interest. And we can figure out a time to book a consult call. Would love to hear and help in any way that I can. Also, we talked about pregnancy loss and now it'll be great just to get into maternal loss. And as we found out a few weeks ago, you actually know of our other guest, Omari, because you are very well acquainted with his mom. So you know about his story and his experience and his journey with maternal loss. So Before we actually get into talking about aspects of his experience, similar question to before. I know you said like when the non-pregnant partner in a pregnancy loss situation, they're often forgotten. In a maternal loss situation, the non-pregnant partner is the one who remains with the child. What is that like in terms of grieving the loss of your partner, but still trying to enjoy the birth of your child? I think it's overwhelming for that non, non-pregnant. I, I think one of the things is also key uh, is the relationship that the non-pregnant partner has with the, the family that and he's identified with Jesus. So the non-pregnant partner, the maternal family, so the mom who has passed away, and what is his relationship like with that support system? And we pray that it's a good one because he needs, he or that partner will need that, that, that support around, particularly when you think about men who really don't know how to, or he can't breastfeed, so he has to do all those things that he may not have prepared himself for and learn all these right, things. So we pray right. that there are figures, maternal figures that know how to surround him and say, hey, this is how you do that and walk him through that. Until he gets it, if he's had that support. If he doesn't have that support, that can be very isolating. And he will have to find a tribe. 
city or to what has the plan of God, a community, it could be it could be a birthing center that offers support or a father a fatherhood group. You okay. know, those are becoming more and more available on team. So it's about the social support system for that person. So because now they're parenting, they may not have planned to be the primary parenting, primary caregiver, they may have been the most important one. And they're also, mm-hmm. so they're parenting, they're also taking care of responsibilities. Now they're trying to do a lot, all thrown at that non-pregnant partner at the same time. That's overwhelming. Yeah. That I don't know. That narrative has to be shared by that non-pregnant partner. They will give us insight into that story because I couldn't imagine that. Yeah. And I was even thinking just now you said something that I guess I was thinking, but you verbalized it really well in terms of not having prepared for their current circumstance. So especially when the surviving partner is a man, as the woman, you grown up being around other women or talking to other women or knowing women who were pregnant, maybe even seeing your mom or an aunt or someone. And so you've had a chance to internalize some of that. You've read the magazines, the books and those types of things. So I know what I feel like when I go to work, and I'm not prepared for a meeting. I can't imagine what that's suddenly having a tiny human that you have to care for. And you've not been prepared for that. Not only from a biological standpoint, but also just from a practical real world standpoint. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I hear what you're saying in terms of needing a tribe and a support network because it can definitely feel isolating. And it's like a weird place to be in, in terms of dealing with your grief. And I feel like, especially for someone with a newborn versus let's say like a parent who lost their spouse and their kids may be a little bit older, with that newborn who has such acute needs that can't be verbalized or you don't even understand and there's no one there for you to say babe what does this mean like how how do we do this it's tough it's heavy I can imagine the anxiety around feeling like I'm gonna fail I'm gonna mess up I'm gonna do something wrong yeah because they just weren't the prepared person in the way that the mom prepared from day one they've been in that supportive kind of role. And that's mm-hmm. just some fathers are on top of it. Maybe they're a little bit more involved. I, I just am always, at my experience, it's been that the mom is so excited and so part of this process beginning to end, whether they were reading the Dr. Spock books or the more current kind of literature on becoming parents. But I, I just can't imagine the anxiety about feeling like if I do something wrong or the fear that right. my family would be mad at me that with me now or and or the opposite everybody keeps telling me what to do they want me to do this they want me to do that that is overwhelming yeah how what are some ways or how would you suggest that the surviving partner honor the deceased spouse or partner for example just in terms of sharing who she was with their child who doesn't get to meet the mom or if you in Omari's case, he had a toddler who was like two, I believe. And now this newborn, the two-year-old may not necessarily remember mommy, may ask for mommy. But in a few years, if mommy is not there, and I know kids like my daughter now, if I say to her, oh, you remember someone? No. So it's may not right. remember the mom. How do you honor the parent who's gone in terms of within that family um, unit? Well, 
I think the only way you film with little people are visuals. And so pictures, and when they're old enough to understand, you can start the storytelling. Mom really enjoyed hearing you. You know, she was so connected to you. Um, she came up with your name. Like sharing all of what the partner, the, the surviving partner can about who the mom was. Like all of these. So almost building the identity for the for the, the little one that is here with the surviving parent. And so hopefully there are pictures. I remember when Amari was sharing there was a picture, I think, on the wall. Yes, yeah. So that's a very visual image that the, the young person can always have in their mind of that's who I look like. Because little ones will have references yes. about mm-hmm. my mom said. And if I never got to meet my mom, the only thing I have are photos and pictures and video. So now we know we have videos. Now exactly. Yeah. So that's more live. Mm-hmm. Like they can see energy, her laughter, her smile when she was crying, or if they took, if they kept and captured. Now I know mom keep memory books and different mm-hmm. things. That yeah. So those things are what keep that parent alive. Okay. Okay. And now question. So the converse of a a woman who's experienced a miscarriage or some type of like stillbirth or pregnancy loss with a child who has survived his or her mom can he or she miss someone that they didn't meet i believe that biologically that happens i definitely believe that i believe i've heard narratives of twins where one is lost and the other is surviving and the surviving twin still feels the loss and that was in utero where the, the, the second baby might not have survived. But that living twin later feels and notices so many things. So I do believe, I think if you bonded with someone that long, how could it not? Now, I, have, I don't have any research or evidence that says that. I only have narratives that have been mm-hmm. shared with me. And I can only imagine that the sharing someone and being connected, how could I not feel something? Uh, may yeah. not be able to identify it. That may be something someone might help me to do later in life. But I, I, I want to believe, yes, that that mm-hmm. notice and experiencing, experience the missing part of that person. I, I do. Yeah. Do you think that there are, um, or is there any evidence to show that children who've lost a parent, um, their mom in childbirth or just after childbirth, that it has any type of long-term like psychological effects or anything like that? Do they develop differently than someone whose mother has not died in? I don't want to say tragic. I don't know if that's like the right word to use, but under those types of um, circumstances. I think the thing that would make that difference is what happens post the trauma of the loss. It's like how, and this would be for any family, any child that loses a parent very early on, is that how much of what happened was normalized later for them, like developmental milestones, they went to school on time, the language, and if they needed, if they had a need for early intervention, those needs were met. I believe as long as the needs are met, and it's a very nurturing environment, that the kid will develop just like any other kid. And now later on in life, when the narrative is shared with them, mm-hmm. they may have some questions that have to work through some things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's more about what happens right after in terms of making sure that the child's emotional, physical, mental needs 
um, are met and okay. that take care of them right away. Do you think that kids um, have survivor's guilt or that the parent who survives has survivor's guilt? If I could have carried the baby, whether she would be here with the kids kind of thing, or if the child takes on that guilt and as if my parents didn't have me, my mom would still be here, especially if they have like another sibling or if they see their surviving parents struggling. Is that like a thing or is it something that I just created in my own mind to be like, I wonder if this happens? No, I think that the parent definitely could have that. I think there is this feeling like I could change places so that she could I believe that people they've had a really good relationship and they really were they knew the heart of the mom that they would yeah absolutely I think I don't want to believe so much for the child because it depends on the story that the child is told so if the child is mm-hmm. told okay. when your mom gave birth to you she you were tied around her it depends on how you tell the story and mm-hmm. then the child internalizes hot to I hadn't been born in that way she would be here then I think there's some kind of guilt versus mom had some medical complications and she made a choice for you to be here that's the love she had for you it's what the story is told around the law that that's what I think will always make it okay. it's interesting because I remember when I was pregnant and I don't remember when in my pregnancy but my my ex, he and I remember having a conversation because I would read and to this day, I still do a lot of morbid things. So I was like, oh my gosh, like anything could happen. I was like, I knew that women sometimes had complications. I didn't know what led to it. So I was like, if, I don't know if I brought it up or he did, but somehow we got on the topic and I was like, if something were to happen, I was like, it saved the baby at all costs. And he was like, he was like, if something were to happen, it saved you, we can make another baby. And I was like, you saved the baby. And I don't know where I got that from. I remembered watching some movie as a kid and Demi Moore was in it. And whatever the question was, they kept saying, you save him. And she thought it was like some man, but it was the baby that she would eventually carry. And when she answered yes, she delivered the baby and then she passed away in childbirth. I don't know if that's something that stuck with me, but I've always just felt like save the baby. Like I've lived my life and my ex-partner, he was just like, no. And I think from his standpoint, it was, I wouldn't know how to do this without you. I'm assuming, but I was just like, are you crazy? I was like, uh-uh. So I was like, I need to have this written down. You will not save me. You will save baby first. And if I can be saved, then do that. Thankfully, we're both, we were both fine. But is that, is that something families should be thinking about or talking about just in terms of should something go wrong? Where should doctors expend their effort, like a living will or some kind of like advanced directive? I don't know. That one, what was the name of the young woman that was on the panel at Rowan? that said that she had a, a plan written out for you. Mm-hmm. She yes. went to the hospital if something happened. And she was super young. So I'm like, if someone yeah. had at that young had that much foresight, right. is that something that um, all expectant oh. parents should be thinking of or doing? I think it's more, I feel like it's more so something that Black, black parents need. I don't, I don't think they want to think about it. That's why it's not that much. I think that people don't want, unless it's a high risk. If we are on someone's high risk, 
And like I said, someone that maybe has had multiple miscarriages or they have other health conditions that is mm. being flared up as a result of being pregnant, like diabetes or something else. And the, and the doctor says, hey, we have to maybe consider this. Okay. Then I think people think about it. But I don't, I think people don't want to think about the possibility of one of us not surviving. Mm-hmm. And so it's a hard conversation. I think that it's up to the families and the, the couple, whether or not they, that's definitely a personal decision about, should we talk about this? We can encourage maybe part of the birthing plan is an okay. emergency. Mm-hmm. Some people have a DNR. Mm-hmm. Yes. It may, this may be the time print in an emergency. Okay. We don't want to focus on that, but in right. an emergency. Yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, Jill, that, that was a great point. I remember she said that she had it. And she also said when she said that she created that plan for her partner to use because of the number of uh, negative experiences that she had with healthcare providers prior to being pregnant. And she knew there was going to come a time where she wouldn't be able to advocate for herself. Very interesting. Similarly to that, I randomly, because I go down the YouTube hole. I landed on a video for Shan Boudram, and I'm sure some of you out there may know who she is. I want to say she's like a sex and dating coach. She's a woman of color, although not a black woman, and her partner seems to be a man of color, although I'm not sure of what ethnic background. She mentioned at one point, she was talking about her um, childbirth story where she had to be induced. I want to say she's Canadian. Don't quote me on that. But she talked about that she needed to be induced. Because some of the terms she mentioned, I didn't hear surrounding childbirth and maternity in this country. So that's why. But she mentioned at some point, like she, her partner was like, oh, she was having contractions and she felt like the baby was coming and they went to go call a doctor or a nurse. And they were like, oh, there are a few other people who are in late stages of labor and are delivering. So we can't get to you right now. Try to hold on. And he was like, what do you mean? Hold on. Mm -hmm. And so he came back in the room and I think, I don't know if he said to her, she said to him, I can't wait anymore. He like went back out and talk about being an advocate. He was like, look, she, I'm going to tell her to push. She's going to push. If somebody wants to come in here and grab this baby, when it comes out, that's great. If not, we're going to figure it out. And (laughs) came back into the delivery room and he told her and she was okay. And then he said, thankfully someone came in after that. So I think about partners like that who are really able to be like look it's not the time for you to say we don't have anybody to help you or this is what we're going to do this is what we would want and how realistic is that anyway for expectant parents you know what you want and I know Sonora says this a lot like she had her plan and her um, doctors were willing to go by her plan until a point how realistic is it for us to have a plan and have it be and expect that it is followed. So the stories that we heard on the, the panel that you guys had um, at Rowan was that they didn't, that the plan did get to a certain point or some of the young, young ladies were talking about they didn't follow the plan. And I guess they don't have to, they don't have to. So it's, a, I think okay. create those plans mm-hmm. as a security and safety net for us. And as part of advocacy on the behalf of our partner, something's gonna happen. But I guess legally, it's not a legally binding document. I think that would be a good question to ask mm-hmm. someone who's in the legal field 
at what point do you sort? How do you do that? I, I don't know. You're in a state where you can't. And if they don't allow a partner to, to speak for the mom, I don't know how much you can really push that. I don't know how far into the plan when things go in a way that needs some other level of intervention. Mm-hmm. What, what happens with that? That's a good question. Also, I wonder if it depends on the hospital. Okay. Which is of the hospital, the doctor, your relationship with the doctor. Those might be outstanding factors that have to be considered. Okay. Another question that I, that just popped into my head. So I know many moms suffer from postpartum depression. And I know that's often tied to the fluctuation in hormones and a number of other things. Considering, and I want to specifically talk about dads. So in heterosexual couples, dads who are the surviving partners, they clearly will not have postpartum depression, but they could be suffering from some type of depression linked to grief. Is that possible? Is it possible that they would, what am I trying to say? Sometimes I've heard like moms who've had postpartum depression, they tend to want to distance themselves from the baby or not want to be around the baby. Can that happen with surviving dads and the baby because the mom is not there and there's some kind of resentment? And what are your, what would you suggest couples do, well, not couples, but in terms of survivors that they do to try to work through that? So I think there's a couple of factors when it comes to men and our providers and problem solvers. They don't think a lot about emotional things like we do as women. They get in there and they take care of it. And I don't know if I would see them as necessarily struggling with the loss in that way. I think they are going to just get in there and do what they have to do to get things done. I do know that men, we know men and their emotions. That is not something they are very comfortable with because of the way we've been socialized and boys to men yep, around yep. talking about depression and grief. So we do need to check in on them and make sure that we are aware whether or not they are sometimes checking out. It could be sleeping longer and that means maybe the baby may be crying. They may be checking out a little bit more and more. So that's, I think, some semblance of a postpartum if they're not wanting to get connected. But I think it's more a reflection of their mental and emotional wellness. Mm -hmm. And I would also say it also, how stable were they before? So does the stress, now it's the stress of being the surviving partner and also taking care of an infant and not really having been prepared, Mm -hmm. does this exacerbate something that was already there? Um, so I think there's never a one-on-one answer. There's always okay. all these insinuating things that we have to consider. And we want men to just be, we, I don't, I think we want to encourage them to let us know when they need help. The problem is because they've been socialized not to do that. We have to look for changes in their mood, mm. changes mm. in their okay. level of involvement and engagement which taking care of the baby, changes in how they're asking us to keep the baby more frequently, mm-hmm. things like that. We just have to make the connections and maybe connect the dots if they're not openly saying, I don't think I can do this. Okay. They wow. not want to say that. Yeah, that's super insightful. And I think it's helpful for those listening and even for Jill and I, if we know anyone at some point to be able to look for those signs. That's 
really great. Thank you so much, Dr. Clack. Just one last question. Do you have any closing thoughts or suggestions for anyone out there who may have experienced or know someone who's experienced pregnancy loss or maternal loss? I do. I think in the beginning, we were talking about what people can do and what they can say versus what they cannot. The safest, I believe, the safest way to be supportive is to be present. You don't have to say a lot. You don't have to ask them what they need a lot. Just jump in and do it. So if it's, if, the, if it's the surviving father and he already has one or two children and now he's the, the only one, just guarantee you he gets hungry. You need to take him a meal a couple of times a week, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like dropped. that's one thing Omari said. He had his yeah. like mother-in-law and other family members who were bringing my food, checking on them. So there was like a steady stream. So check on them, make sure they eat. That's it. It's wintertime. Drop off some gloves. Maybe he didn't think, oh yeah, they do need a coat. It is getting cold. Things like just things that we know intuitively that young people need and maybe mm-hmm. that maybe dads might not, because they're doing so much. That yeah. that that non-pregnant partner, that's a surviving partner, is to think of the things that they might not think of and just do it. Because I guarantee you, if you say to them, can we help you? Nine times out of 10, he's going to say, I got it. Yep, that's me. Right. <laughs> I feel like I'm a guy sometimes. I'm like, no, I got it. Regardless yeah. of what it is. And, yeah. and then looking around. Now, I'm going to put this baby in the cold car and go around the corner and get milk. Mm-hmm. I call someone and say, do you mind running to the store and bringing me? Got it. So sometimes we got to just jump in there and, and help people who normally would not ask them. Got it. Okay. So it's interesting because you said something like women are used to, or I think we've been socialized to be like the default parent. (laughs) That's what my ex and I would be like, I don't want to be the default parent today. And he's like, you don't give me a chance. And I'm like, she would never get to the doctor or get any of her like shots or anything. But it's true. And I don't know why, but that's a great point. That's not something that they've prepared for and so learning how to do that so listeners dr clack has said check on these men and surviving partners make sure they're eating Don't i was going to ask one ask. thing in regards to women who have suffered pregnancy loss should there be a time limit on their grief process Ooh. absolutely not no okay. until <laughs> i knew you were going to say that <laughs> Until I would say there's never a time limit on anyone's grief in terms of their grief journey. So if it takes me a year or whatever, if I've lost someone, I don't want someone to say, oh, you should be over that by now. What I do want people to be aware of is when grief turns into a more complicated bereavement and depression. Okay. And mm-hmm. so we see something serious. So someone could be grieving. And the, the grieving is normal. We want people to grieve and to, and to work through that. That's normal. And there's no time limit on that. However, if during the grieving process, someone is expressing suicidal ideation, where you see that they're not getting out of bed at all, they're not mm-hmm. eating, there's a significant weight loss. They have totally isolated. You come in the house, all the windows are covered. Like when you see that it has become beyond grieving and into a clinical depression, yes. Now, you're not a doctor, family member, so I know you can't say this is clinically concerning. 
when something is beyond what the person can manage. If right. they're not right. all, then yes, we need to intervene. But when it comes to, if it's a normal breathing, there is no time limit on how long it takes someone to work through that. As long as they're getting support, that's okay. another thing. I want to make sure that they're getting support. Okay. So we want to support people. We want to make sure that they're eating. Check on them. Sometimes don't ask and just be there to help them through everything. Dr. Clack, thank you so much again. Please let our listeners know where to find you on social media. So my website is www.clackassociates.com. I'm primarily on Facebook. That's where my Thrive community is. And that's at ClackAngela. And then the same for IG. Those are the places I hang out. Awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you hanging out with us today and talking to us about pregnancy and maternal loss. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maternal Health 911. Please follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to DM me with your questions and thoughts or to share your infertility, fertility, and maternal health story. For more information on this podcast and your host, visit www.drjillbaker.com. Listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review it. It really helps the show and the feedback is welcome.